We continue in our study of the gospel according to Matthew, the former tax collector, one of the most despised persons in the first century, at least among Jewish people. He was a compromiser. He's supporting Rome. He's collecting taxes for Rome. Um, and the Lord came along and said to Matthew, come follow me, come follow me. You remember one of the first things that he did? He held a banquet. He was wealthy. He held a banquet in his own house. And he had his fellow tax collectors and other sinners say, come, come. I want you to meet Jesus. This is the person you need to meet. And now we are probably 20, at least 20 years down the road after the ascension of Christ to heaven, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. And now Matthew is reflecting back and under the inspiration, actually expiration, it's God breathing out through a human instrument, Matthew, he is writing not only for other Jews, but also for Gentiles. And I think that's very important this morning when we come to the second feeding, uh, a miracle meal that we will see uh, this morning. And I'm going to begin after I open in prayer and work through some geography of uh, some slides, and you're going, you may be going, well, why is that important? It's important because it's in the text, and I think it will give us a better understanding, and I will go back and start with the feeding of the 5,000. But remember, this was 5,000 men, and the text tells us also there were women and children. So might have been 20, 25,000 up there on the plain uh, uh, north of Bethsaida. This would be Bethsaida Julius. And then we will find that the feeding, this one is different. It's the feeding of the 4,000. And plus, they also specify women and children. So we're probably 12 to 15,000. But this is going to be in a different area. It's going to be in the, in the Decapolis in Gentile area. So one in Jewish area and one in Gentile area and walking through and what, what is the significance of this and ultimately what should we, should we learn. Father, thank you for the word of God. We pray for the true teacher, the spirit of God to take the word of God and apply it to the heart of each person including the preacher. Give us humility. Give us a desire to be pleasing to you. I do not know the heart of everybody present this morning, but you do. You do. There's nothing hidden from you. Those who stand in need of regeneration, of being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your own dear son, would you bring the conviction of sin and the assurance that you are the Savior and that they might place their faith and trust solely in him and have assurance of the forgiveness of sin. And then those of us who have trusted you, we stumble, we sin. We're still an imperfect people. 
We don't always understand what you're doing. Sometimes we fail to trust you. We, we stumble in our circumstances. Bring greater sanctification, greater holiness, greater godliness. And, Lord, we thank you that when you are done with us, either through the great return of our Lord and Savior, the imminent return of Jesus Christ, or through the avenue of our physical death, you will get us home. So work in grace and mercy this morning. Take the word of God and make it, make it live in our hearts and our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at this morning, and for some, this seems a little bit surprising. I mean, why would Matthew do that? He just talked about the feeding of the 5,000, and now a chapter later, we're going to be looking at the feeding of the 4,000. I will address that in a bit, but liberals just say, oh, can't be. There's only one feeding. It's just uh, Matthew was... Uh, mistaken, maybe Matthew, who, who even knows who wrote uh, the scriptures. So we're going to start here, and the big blue dot there at the uh, right of the Sea of Galilee would be where the feeding of the 4,000 uh, took place there at Bethsaida, Julius. And remember then, after that, they came down. The, remember, the disciples did not want to depart. After that miracle, they go, let us stay with you, Lord. And he says, no, get in the boat and leave. And we also read, and that feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in not only Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it's very interesting because even John records that. And he's the one that says the crowds saw what Jesus has done, and they wanted to come and take him by force and make him their king. They were looking for a political deliverer, and there is some reason for that in Psalm 2. Uh, when the Messiah comes the second time, he's going to rule and reign with a rod of iron. He will subdue the enemies. And so Jesus said, no, get in the boat. And Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. And remember, a great storm came down uh, out of the mountains, and we found the disciples out there uh, in the fourth watch of the night, which would have been between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning as it's starting to get light. And uh, the boat was being swamped. They weren't making a lot of progress. And they look out there and they see something. They thought it was a phantasma, an apparition or a spirit. And actually, it was Jesus who came walking across the water intentionally to them. Now, if we would have been there, we would have been ekphabos, the word. We would have been terrified as well. And that great affirmation from the Lord, it's very strong in Greek. It's one of those I am statements. Ego Amy, I am. It should hearken back to Sinai, preparation for that. I am who I am. 
Peter said, Lord, if it's you, <laughs> command me to come to you. And the Lord says, come, come, right in the midst of a storm, come on. He got out, the only human being that ever walked on water besides Jesus, but he didn't get very far, and uh, he started to sink when, sink when he looked at the waves, a great lesson in humility. He didn't get back in the boat and goes, hey, did you see what I did? And when they got back in the boat, suddenly the wind and the waves and the storm stopped. They stopped. And then they arrived over where the other red spot is here. And this is a shot I'll show you from Mount uh, Arbel. If you ever go to Israel, you want to, they'll take you up on top of our Arbel. And uh, um, you stand there and you can look over the plain of Gennesaret. Um, Capernaum will be farther north. And uh, one of the tallest uh, right there over the Sea of Galilee. And you have a beautiful uh, shot. And so they landed over there in the plain of Gennesaret. Now at that time, there wouldn't have been any towns or cities there. It's a very fertile area, and this would be an area uh, where they were growing a number of crops. And guess what happens when they showed up? Somebody's waiting for them. <laughs> the Pharisees. And there's, then we looked at that uh, confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes, the Torah legal experts, they came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now, this is 70 miles as the crow flies. So it would have been down here, uh, here, and they have to get up there. But if you're going up there, two things about Pharisees and Sadducees. They're not going to go through Samaria. They don't want any contact with Gentiles. And so they would have to go out to the coast and up, or they would have to follow the Rift Valley down along the Jordan. And uh, so we have seen, you know, Josephus tells us there were approximately 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Jesus. So some of them, along with the Sadducees, are part of the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling uh, 70 there down in Jerusalem. But now we have you know, you would see opposition to Jesus, but now you have formal opposition. They make that trip all the way up there, and I submit to you, if they could do it in three to four days, that's probably remarkable. But they say, okay, they come up, and what's the first thing they do when they come up? They challenge him there, just as he fed uh, the 5,000 in the plain of Gennesaret. Hey, your disciples don't eat with washed hands. It has nothing at all to do with hygiene. It's the ceremonial law, the Old Testament. But now what they're claiming is the tradition of the elders. Remember the Pharisees? Uh, they were really the conservative branch, you might say. The Sadducees, they didn't like the supernatural stuff, angels, spirits, resurrection. The Pharisees did but they encrusted uh, the Hebrew Scriptures with their tradition. And when you do that, when you start saying tradition and Scripture, guess which one becomes more important? 
The tradition became elevated, and Scripture is down here. And Jesus rejected all of that. He said, no, you break the commandments of God. And he gave them an example there with Korban. And then it says Jesus and the disciples left. This is very important as we come down to the feeding of the 4,000. Remember, they went up north. And so they up here along the coast is Tyre and Sidon. And it, it just says that's the area of Phoenicia. And they went up there, and what happened? Um, they went into a house. I have no idea whose house they went to because we're not told. But Jesus went up there, and he was intending, I take it, to train his disciples. Remember, they still haven't gotten rest. That's the initial reason they went over to Bethsaida, Julius. They had come back on their first mission that Jesus had sent them on, and they're tired. Nothing wrong with rest occasionally. And a woman shows up, a Canaanite woman, remember last, last week? And her little daughter is not with her. She's there to plead on behalf of her little daughter who is at home in her bed, and she is severely demon-possessed. Now, when we look at other examples of severe demon possession, I remember the one there where a father, you remember the one that the disciples couldn't cast out the demon, and they go, Jesus, how come we couldn't uh, do this? And it would throw that child into the water as if to drown him, cast him into the fire, he would be burned. Um, since the fall of Satan and a third of the angels who fell with him, they hate everything that God stands for. They're locked into hatred of God, and they hate his people. And they hate you this morning. That's why we need the weapons of righteousness. That's why we need to depend upon God. We need his word. We need, we need prayer. And Jesus, at first appearance, seems to just blow this woman off. He says, didn't answer a word. Not a word. And the disciple, she starts crying out after the disciples, and they go, Jesus, dismiss this woman. Get rid of her. I don't know if they wanted her to, you know, just cast out the demons or whatever, but, and, and Jesus finally turns to her and says, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember what she called him? son of David. So here's a Gentile with a Jewish term for Messiah, and he wants to make sure she understands that term. And so he says to her, okay, it's not good to take the food for the little doggies. These, these aren't the packs that are running around. Here's little household pets, and uh, uh, give it to uh, that's intended for the people of God and give it to uh, the Gentiles. And, and the food there is clearly he's talking about the blessing because the blessing she wants is to have the exorcism there for her child. And she comes back, remember, what a remarkable faith, and she comes back and she says, yes, but even the little doggies eat from the crumbs that fall underneath the table. 
in other words. She recognizes, I may not be a Jew, but you, okay, no bread, just give me a crumb, a crumb of your blessing, and I'll be satisfied. Jesus drew out from her. I take it we will see that woman in heaven. This is, this is not only a statement that Jesus tells her that her child's going to be have the demons cast out of, out of her, and, but it says, Oh, woman, great is your faith. You know who the only other person that that's said about? It was the centurion. Roman centurion. Jesus is constantly confronting his own disciples and telling them this, Oh, you oligopistos, little faith, little faith. So from there, we're told in Mark that then, instead of going right back, see Tyre is further south, if you look on the map there on the coast, and he goes all the way up to Sidon. Now, we're not told why, but I take it I would not be surprised if there were other healings over there in Gentile territory. And then they come all the way back down so uh, to the Sea of Galilee, but they seem to have stayed outside of Galilee and Jewish territory. They seem to be traversing in Gentile territory. And this is where Herod Antipas would have uh, rained up there, so they're staying outside of there. And, and they come back down, and this is important as we come to the feeding of the 4,000. So the general route to the return, it's through Gentile territory to Gentile territory. Je- Mark tells us Jesus and his disciples returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon, so they're going up further north, and then they come down along the sea. I take it would be not on towards uh, the Med, but on the other side toward the Golan, and, in, and they come down in the region of the Decapolis. Matthew simply says, Jesus went on from there, the region of Tyre and Sidon, walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. Now, think with me about uh, the Decapolis just for a minute. So up, up there, back down. Next slide. Here we go. Here's the Decapolis. Now, Deca is 10, Polis is city in, in Greek. So they're more like a federation of uh, city-states. But notice they're all on the other side of the Jordan except one. And we went there, those of you who took several. It, it's, uh, remember when we went to Beit Sheon? And it's actually Scythopolis was the lower Roman uh, city down there. It was a marvelous one because an earthquake had happened and everything had caved in. They had un- uncovered and it gave you a great view of what a Roman uh, city would have been at that time. But up at the top, the big hill that we walked up was uh, Beit Sheon, and that's where after Saul, uh, King Saul and his sons were killed up on Mount Galboa, and the Philistines came along, and they cut off his head and those of his sons, and they went and mounted the heads up on the their pagan temple up at the top, and it was the uh, others. So anyway, we're, we're in this type of territory. So that should 
help us understand when Jesus said, um, I'm going to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not good to throw the, the bread to uh, the Gentiles. He's testing her. But here he is. Now he comes down to Gentile territory, and we're not told where in the Decapolis this takes place. Um, he passed along the Sea of Galilee, but somewhere down in here, Jesus goes up on a mountain, and there's plenty of them on the other side of the Jordan, and he sits down, and I want to pick it up in Matthew chapter 15, verse uh, 29. And just like the feeding of the 5,000, we're going to have a great healing taking place here preceding the 4,000. So Jesus went on from there, walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down. Now, whenever you read that phrase, he sat down, if you remember back when we first started through the Sermon on the Mount, he sat down. The sitting was the posture of teaching. So I think that's a hint there. And he's also teaching because wherever Jesus went and for any time period with the crowds, he would not only heal, but he taught. And what did he teach? Repent. Repent. Turn from your sin and believe. Believe in what? Well, here's the king. Here's the Messiah. He has come, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so now in this Gentile territory, they bring, in verse 30, great crowds came to him. It, and we're going to see this is over a three-day period. So they didn't all show up at the same time. If you're going to bring these people, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they laid him them at his feet, and he healed them all. No exceptions. If they brought them, I mean, I would be standing in line with my neuropathy in my legs, and I would be glad for a new set of legs at, uh, at my age. These are people far worse than that. Now, the first one is really an interesting word, the, the uh, uh, kolos or the crippled, the lame. It refers to any part of the body that is deformed or non-functioning. And it includes both the mutilation of a limb or the total loss of a limb. Now, why this is so striking is remember in uh, Matthew 18, Jesus said, and he said it in the Sermon on the Mount as well, if your hand offends you, do what? Cut it off. And if your foot offends you, what should you do? Cut it off. Now, some later on uh, and pluck out your eye, etc. You didn't see any of the disciples doing that. Why? Because they understood what he was talking about. It's an expression, you need to do something radical about your sin. But that's the term there of having a hand cut off. It's the same type of thing here of that word describes it of a lame. So Jesus used the term to describe people with a missing hand or foot. 
so the people who were seeking his help were the most seriously deformed. I never thought about it that way, but some of the commentators say because of that term, if you were missing a hand or a foot, Jesus would have restored it. No wonder the crowds, (laughs) let alone to see the serious uh, lame and and crippled and mute uh, people that can't hear, people the blind that can't see. And it says the crowd marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, the blind seeing. Now watch this. They glorified the God of Israel. Here's another indication that we are now in Gentile territory. This is primarily going to be a feeding for the Gentiles because if you look at uh, in at least in the go- in the Gospels, usually the blind the blind man in in Jewish territory, and it says he glorified God. But when the Gentiles are saying it, they glorified the God of Israel, of Israel, not necessarily their own God. So this is this is very striking. And now we will come down to uh, in the Decapolis here to the events uh, preceding it. I'm going to, because of the time, I'm going to skip Mark 7, that also he, he highlights one uh, healing in particular. Remember, he made some uh, saliva, and, he, and, he put, and you just go, why did, why did that take place? Well, we're not told why Jesus did it. I'm taking it was for the benefit of the man with the speech impediment. So people have been coming to Jesus over a three-day period. So they're all bivouacked out there (laughs) on the mountainside. And so people are coming for, uh, and, and how did they learn? Remember when they came, when Jesus came across the first time, right before uh, the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, two demoniacs came down out, and they were so fierce that nobody would pass through that area. They had tried to restrain them with chains, and they just broke them. And so he sees a little boat coming and some people getting out, and one of the demoniacs goes running down there, and all of a sudden he goes, "Uh uh-oh. Immediately, the demonic world knows who Jesus is. And what did they say? Why have you come to torment us before time? We know who you are, the Son of God. Now, that is a term of deity, as we saw also when uh, Jesus walked on the water. Remember what the exclamation was when he got it? Truly, you are the Son of God. And so they said, would you, would you cast us into that herd of pigs there? said, okay, about 2,000. And what happened to the herd of pigs? They rushed down the cliff, and they perished, and they go back into the town, and the people come out, and they go, I don't know who this is that, that uh, can do this type of thing, but get Jesus and his disciples out of here. But the one demoniac, they saw him sitting clothed in his right mind. What a testimony. And he says, I want to go with you. I want to go with 
your disciples. I, I, want, I just want to stay with you. And Jesus said, nope, you're not coming along. Here's what I want you to do. And it specifically says the Decapolis. I want you to go back in the Decapolis and tell what great things God has done for you. So we have a flaming evangelist that's already been there in the Decapolis. These people have heard. They've seen a personal example of this demoniac, and they go, are you kidding me? Jesus is now in our territory, and so they're showing up by the thousands, and thousands are being healed. So now we come to the third day, and we're in Matthew 15, 32. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they collapse on the way. Now, I want to pause here. And I, I read liberal commentators. I want to know what they have to say. I want to know why they reject Scripture. I want to be involved in apologetics. I want to look at the text very carefully. So most... Uh, skeptics will say this is this is a doublet. If you're not familiar with what a uh, doublet is, it, it's only one event, not two, that I remembered much later. Have you ever played a game like this? It's, it's really kind of fun. You get about 16 people around in in a circle on chairs, and so the first person tells make up a story. Doesn't matter what the story is, but put enough details in it, and you tell it to the next person. Just whisper it to them. And then that person tells it to the next person. And then that person tells it to the next person. But you put enough details in, so it's hard to remember all the details. And then by the time you get around to the 16th person, stand up and tell what the story is that initially started out. And it's almost invariably, what? <laughs> That's not what I said. And so liberals say, look, we're, we're, we're a couple decades down the road and you know, who really knows what happened? And it's just a story that was passed on. And so, you know, um, it, the details got kind of confused. There was some kind of feeding back there. But uh, um, I, I just want to say one thing. If you do that, just be clear, you're rejecting the words of Jesus. Look at, look at quickly chapter 16, jumping ahead in verses 9 and 2. Jesus affirms that there was two feedings. Look at that, verse 9. Don't you yet perceive? We'll come to that, Lord willing, next week. Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000? I'm, I'm glad five with five, it helps me remember <laughs> that or, and how many baskets you gathered? How many baskets were picked up at the first one? Twelve. Why twelve? It's just what the text says. There were twelve disciples that went out. Evidently, each one get a, got a basket. And then he says, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered. So how many baskets were gathered the second time? Seven. Twelve and seven. Now we'll come to those. Uh, and they, I think they do have 
uh, some symbolic significance. It really was 12 baskets and seven baskets. Um, but if you reject that there were two feedings, just be very clear, you're rejecting what Jesus had to say as well. So just, just, just quickly, in terms of differences between the two miracles, you know, when all else fails, just read your Bible. Just read your Bible and say, what does it say? You can do this for yourself. So I, I didn't include all the, uh, on the first one, because it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the second one on just Matthew and Mark, but there's a miracle meal 5,000, miracle meal 4,000. Um, where they come from on the first one, they're arriving across the sea from Capernaum. Where are they coming from the second one? They're coming down from, from Sidon. Uh, uh, the location on the first one is Bethsaida, Julius here. The location on the second one is over in the Decapolis. The timing on the first one, it's only one day. It's the same day, and it's in the evening. Here, the timing is the third day. And there's a dialogue in the first one that's set out in John, you know, Philip and Andrew. How are we going to feed all these people? And he's saying this to test them. There's no direct question. Jesus makes a statement in the second one. Source of food for the... Remember a young boy? Evidently, he was excited, hadn't eaten all of his lunch, and that's where it came from. On the second one, the source of food, how much food do you have? Now, maybe we're not told they went out and got it from anybody. Maybe the disciples this time had learned, and they had the food. I don't know where it came from. It just tells it there. Five barley loaves, two little fish. It's different. Seven loaves and just some little fish. Leftover, 12 full baskets on the feeding of the 4,000 left over seven full baskets. And when they depart, after the first one, Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray alone. Then we're going to have walking on the water. Here, Jesus and the disciples uh, depart to Magadan, which may be uh, an, an alternate spelling for Magdala. In other words, here, an understanding of one event a doublet, tells us about a heart of unbelief. Not about the truth of the historical record of Scripture. When all else fails, read your Bible. Read your Bible and believe uh, the Word of God. So, let's look at the events prompting uh, the miracle here in uh, going back to Matthew chapter 15. Jesus calls his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Now, often preceding a healing is this word compassion. I have compassion. The one right before he sent them out on their mission, he says, I'm looking. They were bringing people uh, with physical needs, and Jesus says, I have compassion upon them. And there it says, because they were trodden down, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I can tell you if you have compassion. This is a verb, splonknizomai, and it refers to your splonknos, your, your, your gut. If I look out there and uh, I, I see someone in a miserable condition, and I go, well, you know, yeah, they're miserable. I'll try and, no, he was moved in his emotions. This is a verb of emotion. He felt, he felt because it went through his mind. He, rem he knew what happened at the fall. 
He knew the misery that sin brings and the results and consequences of sin, both in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. And he looked out there, and he had compassion upon those people. And here, it's compassion because they have nothing to eat. They've come. So they probably were initially just coming. We're going to go get healing. We're coming back. And just think of what they saw. And so they stuck around. And they didn't have enough food. Now, maybe the seven loaves were the disciples had a little foresight. Maybe it came, it came from there. But we want to stress here, there's no one as compassionate as God himself. Mark it down. Whenever my circumstances tell me God doesn't care, I'm outside of the bounds of Scripture. I have just followed my, my circumstances and my feelings, but not God of the Word. That great revelation, remember Exodus and Moses, uh, you know, show me your kavod, glory. God, show me your glory, kavod, your weight. You're the supreme heavyweight of the universe, of your importance. Moses, you can't see that. Get over there in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by, and I'm going to proclaim my name. His name refers to all of his characteristics. You know, he says, and he proclaimed his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, the covenantal God. And the first thing he says, I am a God of compassion and grace. Thank you, Lord. And, and the God of compassion how compassionate is he to come to guilty sinners, leave the glory of heaven, and know precisely why he's going to come and die and pay a ransom? That's what he says. I come to give my life as a ransom on behalf of many. Now, this word, unwilling to dismiss them, uh, remember what the disciples wanted to do at the first time? feeding. They said, Jesus said, uh, they, they initially said, Set, dismiss all these people. We don't have any food. And Jesus goes, no, you, you give them something <laughs> to eat. He's getting their attention on their lack of resources so they would look to him. They go up to Tyre and Sidon, and this woman comes along crying out desperately for the relief of her little daughter from demon possession. And what do the disciples do? Same verb. Dismiss her. Get rid of her. And Jesus says, it's almost like he's preempting what they're thinking. <laughs> no, don't say dismiss them. I'm not willing to dismiss them away hungry, lest they collapse on the way. Some of these people that, that, that came, that came from a long distance. And so the disciples, now here's what some consider to be the crucial question. The disciples respond, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And you just go, and I go, wait a minute. <laughs> they just saw a chapter before. It's recorded. They saw what Jesus did. And so how are they going to say, how are we supposed to do that? Now, it is possible. I've looked at it carefully. Some suggest I'm not going to go back there to the, but it says you, and here it's we, but it's we emphatic in the Greek text. 
So they evidently understand that Jesus is telling them to do it. Regardless, we know what they should have done. At least, if I would have been there, I would have done the same thing that they would did. I'm not, you know, we look back and, and, and we say, now, oh, what are you guys, dense or what? <laughs> what did you just watch him do? I mean, he just kept giving, kept giving, filled the baskets, filled with every, everybody ate and was satisfied. What do you got? Well, when we come to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has to remind them of what took place in both occasions because they're up there and they're going, uh, you know, maybe we didn't bring along enough bread. And he's going, <laughs> who is with you? You still haven't got it. So I would say here, we never want to underestimate a heart of unbelief. A heart of unbelief. Um, and so when they make the statement, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a cloud, crowd? Jesus takes the initiative. How many loaves do you have? Seven. And, and these are small, dried fish. I know the Peter's fish, that stuff we ate there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it. But if you're hungry, you will eat that stuff. And what's he do before he gives thanks. He broke them. Now, the ESV renders it, he gave them to the disciples. But there is a text, a tense in there. It's an imperfect tense. And it says, and he kept giving. And he kept giving. And he kept giving. He kept giving. And evidently, the miracle takes place in the hands of Jesus. It just... You go, well, how did he do that? I don't know. I'm not God. It just tells us what happened. How did the eternal God, triune in nature, in the beginning, Elohim, the majestic term for God, created the heavens and the earth. He created ex nihilo, out of nothing. So here we have, again, bread that never grew in the ground, never went through the mill, fish that didn't swim in the sea. He just keeps multiplying them, multiplying, multiplying them. Do I really trust my God? I read these accounts, and I cry out, God, would you, would you make this to bear upon my own heart, my life, when I'm going through difficulties? I don't know how God is going to answer sometime, but I want to trust him. And so sometimes I don't know exactly how to pray. Oh, we're told pray according to Scripture, but not every situation is covered in Scripture. And so Derek Thomas, if you haven't read it, we've had it on the book table. It's his great exposition of Romans chapter 8. The Spirit makes intercession for us with inexpressible groaning because he knows the mind of Christ and Derek Thomas. He fixes our prayers on the way up. 
So as far as I can tell, I'm not praying in an unbiblical way, but sometimes I don't know for sure, and I'm trying to apply it to a situation. He gives, he gives, he gives, and he gives more grace. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Now, let me go down here to, um, here we are. So there's two different words for a basket here in the, in this, the one that we have here is seven full baskets. Uh, uh, I think it's Juvenile, one of the writers at Rome. And this would be a basket that the Gentiles would probably use. Now, remember when Paul was going to escape from Damascus and they let him down in a basket. This is that kind of basket. So actually, seven of those, these are big baskets, and there probably was more left over from this one than the feeding of the 5,000. The other one in chapter 14, 12 full baskets, I take it 12 because there were 12 disciples. So all the food's gone, and they go, hey, guys, anybody got a basket then? And people had, these are small, like, lunch baskets, a kofi nas, and uh, those, those were 12. Now, also, this is significant when you think about, I, I don't want to get off track in numerology. Some, sometimes people just go crazy over, over numbers that are unjustified. But if there is a number that I think all would recognize, it's the number seven. How many days did it take him? Six, and he rested on the seventh. And you just follow that through. Seventh is a day of completion. And so I think the seven full baskets, there really were seven full baskets, but everybody completely satisfied. And when 12, you think about the 12 disciples, you go back to the 12 tribes of Israel, you go back to Jewishness. And if you think, oh, Trevor, thank you. We, we worked through this morning in the first hour the names of uh, two wives, two handmaidens that Jacob got up there. And you look at the names of them, and they all have significance. And all over that is just the grace of God all over your life, regardless of whether you come to a believer at an early age, middle age, later, it's always the grace of God. He causes the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to shine in the heart. Now, parents, we have a responsibility. I'm, I'm to train. I'm to teach them the gospel. I'm to pray for my children, now my grandchildren, I, I, pray, I pray for them, but I can't turn on the light. If I could turn on the light, it would have happened about one day old or sooner. <laughs> you know, you think you're a good parent until they hit teenage years, and then you just go, I repent of that thought. 
You can't take the responsibility for your children. They have to take responsibility for themselves. And sometimes there, there's, like in my life, there's some irresponsibility. But you don't stop praying. You don't stop teaching. You don't stop exhorting. And you say, God, would you do what only you can do and do a work of grace? Well, here it is. Seven for the Gentiles, 12 the Jewishness. So in, he's satisfied. And, and why in Gentile territory? We are headed down to the Great Commission. This is a foretaste of it. So finally, post-resurrection, and Jesus is going, he tells his disciples, go ahead in Galilee, and uh, I'm going to meet you up there on a the mount. Some think that uh, it may have been Hermon or Tabor or uh, one, of, one of those, but he goes, and what does he tell you? When you go, you're to make disciples. Lost sheep of the house of Israel? No, no. Of all nations. Doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Are you done then? I just, I, I baptized, you know, I have baptized folks that made a right profession. Try and be very careful. Make sure that intellectually understand it. And later on, it turns out that uh, probably all that happened was they got wept because there is no repentance and they, but I, I keep praying for them. Okay, thank you that I realize that now. May you turn to him. But then you not only baptize them, them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're supposed to do what? Teach them what? Everything that I have commanded you. Wow. That goes on until we get home to eternity. Why are we looking at this book? Why are we walking through Matthew? Why are we taking? Because God will take his word. And I'll look at those dense, at times, disciples. And I go, there's dense Pastor Klein. Lord, help me to grow in truth and grace. Help me to love my God. Help me to love people. Help me to get the beams out of my own eyes when I look out there and I see other people with faults and I'm not, hey, you. No, the finger needs to go this way. Help me to get the logs out of my own eyes and then to try and help people. And then they depart to Magadan. And guess who shows up when they get to Magadan? <laughs> I love that one description. They're out there in the field on Shabbat, the Sabbath, and they're walking through disciples picking grain. And who pops up out of the wheat field? Pharisees, too, <laughs> accuse them. And we're going to see that the... Con but now the confrontation is getting more intense. And the disciples don't realize it yet. So, uh, applied theology. Turn over to a Gospel of John in conclusion. Now, this is going to be the end of the feeding of the 5,000, but I think some principles apply here as well when we come over to, uh, first of all, Actually, verse 24 is what I'm looking for. When the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, 
nor his disciples. They themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum. And so when you jump down to verse 59, this bread of life discourse, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So the whole thing on the, on the feeding of the 5,000, now he's going to teach them the significance when he says, I am the bread of life. So we, we come down to uh, verse 26. Amen, amen. Take this to the bank. I say to you, you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And they're thinking, wow, what kind of food is this? For on him God the Father has set his seal. You know, Saeed used this, uh, and he was in a restaurant. I'm not going to tell I, I can't tell you where um, because of the nature of, of what he does. And so he's in there, and uh, he used this, and he says, um, a great meal, but I know someone, when you eat of his food, you'll never be hungry again. And the guy goes, really? I'd like some of that food. He says, well, it's not the food that is here. Let me tell you about this food. Jesus gives himself. He is the bread of life. And he said, the man came to trust Jesus Christ. And when he goes back, he follows up with those people. So here, here we see it right here. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Merit? Watch this. Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, they just had the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Do they believe? No. They say, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? And we're going to see the same thing when we get down to chapter 16. So I say, when in this bread of life discourse, have you come to Christ? Have you come to Christ? You can't get in there on your parents' coattails. You have to believe for yourself. Every single person will stand accountable to God for yourself. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and have the forgiveness of sin. And then go to the Word of God and, and make this book your companion and grow in truth and grace. Paul's a wonderful teaching last night, the emphasis on prayer. And he turned to me and said, okay, Pastor Klein, would you close us in prayer? And, and I closed this way. It's a, little, it's a little poem I learned from Harry Ironside. In my heart, in my heart, send a great revival. Teach me how to watch and pray and read my Bible. May God make that true in each one of our hearts and lives.